This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Fernanda Forder, Director at Voltron Data and Experienced HPC Practitioner, which is probably a huge understatement. Fernanda has a really rich and prominent history in the HPC community, having been at national labs, large companies, and more recently, even startups, which I hope she tells us some about today. So first, Fernanda, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you have had quite an adventure in terms of life experience, and I'm so excited to talk to you about this journey. Before we jump into sort of more current issues around high-performance computing, could you take us back to perhaps your training and tell us how you got started in this industry? I actually stumbled upon it. I'll tell you a little bit of a background that's interesting about me. I didn't meet my dad until I was late in life. I was about 28 when I first met my dad. It turns out that my dad was in high-performance computing, and I have another four siblings once I met him, and I had no idea that my dad was in high-performance computing, and I'm the only person in the family out of all my siblings that ended up doing high-performance computing. You know, I had no idea it existed. I had no idea how I ended up in this. Genetics, fate, not sure, but somehow I ended up in high-performance computing. Through grad school, I just gravitated towards computers. I thought I wanted to be a scientist. My mom didn't finish high school. Again, circumstances in Brazil made it happen. So when I went to, when we moved to the United States, she was a self-made woman. We moved to the United States and I just knew that I loved science and I loved checking out National Geographic, you know, VHS tapes from the library. I went to school for first engineering and then, then I just, I didn't do well in electrical engineering. So I moved to mechanical engineering. I really didn't like statics, which is one of the first courses you take in mechanical engineering. A uh, physics professor luckily says that, hey, you know, you're really good in physics. Why don't you consider physics for a degree. And I balked. I remember the words that I said was, I don't want to be some nuclear scientist. Like, I don't want to work with that. And he's like, no, that's not all that physicists do. Let me no, come to my office later. Let me explain. And Dr. Larry Kramer at FIU, which is a wonderful Hispanic serving institution, was the beginning of my inroads into computing. He got me working on some data with JLab. I published an abstract with one of the grad students I worked on my first Fortran code back in 1998, 97, you know, started optimizing the code. The code would, I would just go into the lab. He paid me 20 bucks an hour to just sit there and do these runs for cross sections out of JLab Hall B. And that started off my kind of love affair with that. I tried doing experimental physics. I broke a very expensive piece of equipment. And the professor quickly said, you know, why don't you work on a data acquisition and just stop touching the equipment? <laughs> So when I went to grad school, I ended up doing molecular dynamics, which is computers and postdoc luckily had left. Uh, lucky for me because the professor realized that I was kind of savvy with computers. And she says, you know, postdoc left, you're good with computers. Uh, why don't you take care of the cluster? And it was about 300 nodes in a closet back in 2005, 2006 timeframe. And I was like, no problem. And I spent the entire time in grad school, three years, I was ABD. I spent the entire time there just optimizing the kernels, optimizing the applications, parallelizing, writing, making new clusters, optimizing the storage. I just loved every piece of it. And finally, 
in my third year, I was just like, you know, I think I'm going to go work. I don't really care so much for the science. I love science, but I love being part of it. So I kind of happened upon it. It wasn't planned. None of my career was planned. I just follow what's interesting to me and that's somehow it's worked to this day. 300 nodes in a closet. I absolutely love that. It could be like a movie title, but I think it's it's also kind of funny because it probably describes a lot of these quote HPC clusters. Uh, hopefully, hopefully not the case anymore. You eventually went to a national lab. How did that journey happen? I was working for an agricultural genomics company called Genus. Actually, the subsidiary that I worked out of, it was called the Pig Improvement Company. And I had a wonderful mentor at the Pig Improvement Company, Scott Newman. Dr. Newman encouraged me to go to conferences. And he said, he was the one that got me started in corporate America. And he's like, look, you need to take time off. You don't tell them why, you just take time off. Look, you need to go to a conference. This is part of your you know, professional development. And you just you just say what conference you need to go to and you just go. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go. And so, you know, fresh out of grad school, I went to supercomputing. And I'm sitting there next to somebody that worked at the lab. And he's just like asking me, he's like, what, what do you do? And I was in the booth. Oak Ridge at the time had its own booth before the DOE had combined all the booths. And it was a really beautiful booth. And I'm sitting there watching the video and I see 2011. And just chatting with this guy, he's like, what do you do? I work at this company. What are you doing? I built them a cluster, you know, optimizing their code. A lot of the codes come from academia. It's in Fortran. I'm parallelizing them using OpenMP, MPI. Wow, it sounds like you'd really be great working at this national lab. Again, it was not in my radar to be in the national lab. I didn't think of myself as coming from a particularly strong academic background. and never would have imagined that I would have been good enough to be frank, to even apply, I would have never applied. And uh, he's like, you should apply. And I was like, are you serious? And so he brings me immediately to the hiring manager, Ashley Barker. And she was a user assistant group leader at Oak Ridge National Lab. She talked with me and she says, send me a resume tonight. And that night I just got a resume together, kind of half-baked. I emailed it to her. And the next day I talked to some people at SC and then I had an interview in February. I remember because it snowed in Tennessee, it's kind of rare to snow here. And I barely made it to my interview, but it, it worked out and they hired me and I couldn't believe it. And they were putting Titan together at the time. They were just transitioning from Jaguar to Titan. I loved working there. It was absolutely the most amazing time. Your story is really interesting because a lot of the early work that you're describing sounds a lot like research software engineering. Of course, we didn't have a term for it at that time. So as this Mm. movement has emerged in the last decade or so and in the United States more recently, how has this community sort of jived with you or not jived with you? And what do you see as the intersection of the worlds of high performance computing and research software engineering? We were right at that transition between like hero programmer and, you know, teams of people required to make these applications work on these really large systems, right? Right around that 2008 to 2012 timeframe was that transition was happening where you couldn't just be that lone developer anymore. I mostly gravitated towards the idea that it shouldn't be this hard. None of this should be this hard. Why do we make people suffer so much to run on these systems? They just want to get their science done. My entire drive, even you know, early on as a child, was just improving 
ways of making things, kind of hacking my way through life, improving, I don't know, the time that I spent brushing my teeth and what things I could do. Like I was just hacking my way through life. So it was ingrained in me that I wanted to improve the condition and the environment for people that were doing this kind of work. And so when I went to the lab, there was an opportunity that person that was doing training again left and, you know, anybody want to take care of training and nobody raised a hand. It's that sort of ingrate of a feel like no, everybody wants to be technical, but nobody wants to be that kind of person that improves the technical. And I think research software engineering people gravitate towards that, right? They gravitate towards making things better, easier, more functional. And so I raised my hand. I said, yeah, I don't know how to run in a supercomputer yet. I just got here, but I'll learn. I'll figure it out. And I'll learn enough. And it was ambitious, to say the least, to say that I could teach world-renowned scientists how to run on a brand new supercomputer with a brand new piece of hardware called a GPU. But I didn't think I couldn't learn it. So I said, yes, I, I want to be part of that. I want to improve the condition of how you know people do science. I really empathize with a lot of what you said. I think if I look back to sort of my training and my PhD, I wasn't super into the science and like answering these questions, but I, I very often would say like, why is it so hard to like go on our system and do something once and then do it again? I think that idea is what got me into sort of containerization and trying to make a difference. And you really bring up some important points, I think, that I'd want to talk about with you is about culture. Over the years, I've noticed that there are specific sort of trends in terms of the culture in high performance computing. What would you say are some challenges with respect to the culture and maybe also things we're good at? The first thing that actually I, I hit on when I arrived at the lab was this idea that we had to be that hero person. I remember trying to make something easier for one of the folks. In fact, I think I told the story on Twitter, which is somebody had brought in an application that was using the C++ MPI interface, and I converted it to the C interface to run on this SGI machine because they had been deprecated, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the site compers came down and they came down on me and made me feel bad that it's like, look, this is their job. And if they don't know how to do this then they shouldn't be running here. And I thought, this is absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> what a ludicrous idea to have that be the, the bar, right? To do science. We shouldn't be doing this. We should be helping in any way and making science possible. And one of the people that ended up being my best friend in this community, Rebecca Harmon Baker, came down later and I was feeling kind of bummed out about it. She's like, no, 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 we do whatever it takes. And this was the kind of mantra that came from her mentor, Ricky Kendall, which we fondly called Dirtbag and unfortunately passed away. And so Rebecca came down and said, no, we do whatever it takes. We're here to help. This is our job. We help scientists. And that began, I think that was transformative for me because it immediately created a sense for me that I wanted to fight against this kind of belief that you had to have a certain bar to reach here. And maybe it was my, like, I felt like I didn't belong. So therefore I wanted to fight for those that didn't, like, I'm here now. I can fight for those that feel like they don't belong in the situation. And so my training took that bend. It used to be the training at the labs were delivered in this very, like, I am the you know information holder. I'm you're at a workshop. You watch me from this podium, and from this podium, I deliver to you all the best ways and the best practices to do things. And you should be using this language, and you should be using this library. You should be using these methods. And I thought, 
that is, you know, frankly, (laughs) there are constraints. There are reasons why people make decisions. This is absurd. And so when I created the GPU hackathons, it was with that thought in mind, why I was asking climate scientists, why can't you move away from Fortran? Well, we have this huge elaborate process that requires validation of results so they can be compared year after year. We can't just drop everything and you know, lose all of this and lose this connection and how our results, we have this IPCC report that we have to publish and people depend on it. And I was like, oh, okay. So there are institutional constraints. You might have wanted to change language, but you want to continue with this language because it matters how the science gets perceived and the accuracy with which it gets perceived. And to sit there from a podium and be like, you should be using these kinds of methods and these sorts of tools. It just felt, again, absurd is the only word I can really use. So my role became that of like a listener and thinking, how can I make sense that people can have their cake and eat it too? And that people can do their science, be who they are and work as efficiently as possible and run in these big systems and get the most and the best science out of it. I was having an interesting conversation pretty recently with a colleague about how there's this survivorship bias in HPC. So, you know, that example of the airplanes coming back from some kind of shooting and then, oh, look, there's no damage on the engines, but in truth, anything that gets a shot in the engine is not going to come back. And it kind of makes me think of when we look across our community, all of the people that are sort of selected for because they haven't left, and that includes HPC practitioners and researchers. And there's just this like huge cohort army of people that are absent. They're not present because they fell off along the way. Either they said, nope, this is too hard, or the, you know, the culture is just not right for me, or maybe just feeling like they didn't have any opportunity to kind of be a voice at the table for change. So is this something that you've seen? And I guess the really hard question is like, I feel like I want to be able to do some kind of survey, like exactly what you're talking about, talking to the users, like what is hard for you? What can we make better? But the problem is there's so many people that have left that we just don't know where they are. Right. And a lot of people have quit. And, you know, to be honest, during zero weeks, I'm exactly a zero weeks since I've thought about just quitting buying a cabin in the woods and just retiring as a hermit with a band full of goats. Like, <laughs> there are days where it's completely demoralizing when you're reading what people have to endure because they're just trying to get their work done. And then on top of that, a lot of them are academics. They're just trying to get a grant so they can get some piece of application, you know, to run on a supercomputer. And in a way, the lab is equalizing because it allows people to run a piece of software and not necessarily have to get financial support. They're getting like this sort of funny money that's called a core hour. And they were able to get a lot of science done just through director's discretion, which is this sort of easier on-ramp to one of these systems. And we were able to get interesting science done without them having to go through this very laborious process to do a proposal and an NSF proposal or a DOE proposal or et cetera, et cetera. So I do, I mean, I agree with you. I wonder about the little science and the person that isn't scaling to 20% of the machine, which was with a requirement for, you know, the national labs, the leadership computing facilities, like where are the people that are doing amazing science at 16 nodes and or just on you know a handful of GPUs, those folks, they still need help. 
it's still nearly impossible to do it by yourself today. It's too hard. There's too many pieces of hardware, too many places to optimize. And you're not a computer scientist and you're a physicist, just like me. You're hacking your way through languages, learning. Maybe you've taken a course. Maybe you haven't. It's hard. I don't know how to describe Like you can probably sense in my frustration. I just, I just want to help everybody, but you can't. There's no magic bullet. It's hard, but you, you got to be there and hold their hand and help them out. I think I felt that frustration as well. And side note, goats would be very useful where I live right now because we keep catching fire and we need someone to go out there to eat all that dead grass. (laughs) (laughs) I'll contribute my goats to the the community. (laughs) You sort of touched on this, but there are so many cool new shiny things, both on the side of HPC and then maybe more on the side of sort of cloud native technologies that someone that's in an HPC community sees and they get excited about. How do we strike a balance between telling someone, well, if you upgrade to this new language or this new thing, your life is going to be better, easier. You can use more tools. You can collaborate more versus kind of trying to support the way that people have been doing things for like 25 years. The hardest part was when we were transitioning from Jaguar to Titan, it was me standing there saying, yeah, you're going to have to learn a whole new thing called CUDA. Sure, it's a superset of C. And if you know C, you're probably going to have an easier time, but you have to learn how to move data, all this other stuff that came with GPUs. And then I would do the workshops and then I would ask people three months later, it's like, did you use any of the stuff that you learned? And they love the workshop. Every time I would do a survey, they were like, great workshop. It was great. Thank you so much. The speakers were awesome. You did a great job. Three months later, the application still hadn't moved. And what I learned from asking people later, why haven't you done it, was number one, the on-ramp to use the tools, it was just too high. So they could not on-ramp fast enough to get some work done. And the tools were broken. A lot of compilers were just downright broken. And it wasn't anyone's fault. Again, it was a systemic thing because the applications that were sent or the mini apps or the test applications that were part of the CI didn't have the kinds of applications that were actually running on the systems. It were simplified versions of those applications and didn't come with the history of the application. It wasn't, again, that the applications were poorly written. It was that the simplified versions of the applications were simplistic and These applications had history, the actual full applications had history and came with all the baggage of what it's like to have an application that has lived and been developed for over 15 years. And so we saw things in the hackathons like the order of includes would break the compiler. We saw things like there was an if-def issue. So just parsing if-defs was something that was difficult for a few compilers. And I'm talking most compilers. I'm talking all of the compilers that were available to us at the time, which are Cray, PGIs, GCC, et cetera. Our people were at the events were literally just running from one compiler to the next to try to see if that compiler would compile. And so that whole idea of like telling people just go over there and change everything and go to CUDA didn't work. And what we changed to as for a goal for the hackathons was to just get them to do like a small thing, just pick a small place, pick a hotspot, do something simple and see if it works for you. And instead of telling people, go take your application and port to the next thing. And, you know, if you want to use the latest and greatest, and if you want to be out there, you better move, right? This sort of paternalistic kind of frame. I just went and said, why don't you just port 1C and just try to run on the GPU and see if it works. And that took the mindset from, oh, I have to do this entire thing. This is horrible. Like I have to change again. You're changing the hardware from under me again, right? That whole drama that came with it went from, oh, this was cool. 
I can run this now so much faster. And you know what? This was like written in a simplified way because we didn't have the hardware at the time. I can put the entire equation there and I can put the entire solver in there and the entire solver can run on this GPU. And now I can do more science. I can do better science. I can add more physics, all those other stuff. And it opened them up because they took a smaller part of the application. And this piecemeal approach was much more approachable than, hey, person A, go change our entire application because things are changing and everybody's going GPU and you better get you know with the program. I have had that same experience too. Someone once asked me, how do you get users to adopt these new practices or to use this new software? And I was like, well, you don't. You, you have to meet them where they're at. You have to show them something yes. that's easier. Maybe it's a little fun. Maybe it's like exciting. It yes. makes them feel empowered to do something. And then they're the ones that decide they want to do it. But you can't give this prescriptive sort of declaration. Like, meet them oh, where they're at. Better. Exactly. That is the meet them where they're at. I literally sat down. I know I would accept these teams. We had an acceptance criteria for the hackathons. It was not like trying to keep people out. It was, I was trying to fit as many teams as possible. And my idea was that if they come as a team, they can take it back and they can like, we work on this together so we can continue the work. And I literally sat by them, beat them where they're at. Why are you here? Why do you care? What are you trying to do? What is the science you're trying to accomplish? Like, why would you even, you know, need a GPU? And we questioned everything throughout the five-day event. Like, is this important? Is this really what you want to do? Is it important that you keep the same data structure? Well, um, actually, no, it's not. Then create some temporary data structures and just keep going. Like our goal is to just move on. And when we simplify the steps, at the end, what surprised me, I just wanted people to run some code on the GPU. Like literally, I thought it would take them five days to just get something to work because that's what I was asking people how long it took them. And they were like, it's taking me forever. But at the end of the hackathons, what we realized is that there were entire applications that were being ported. It went beyond my dreams that entire applications were being moved because once they got it, they were productive, they could do it, they figured it out. Once I had an application at Brookhaven where there were literally five scientists just like breaking their head and it was Christian Schrott was their mentor, Christian Schrott of Sandia. And every time they pulled some piece of the data structure out, the entire application would just break. It was poorly documented. <laughs> like there is no commenting. It was that classic application that just absolutely sucked. And finally, day two comes around Tuesday, Tuesday evening. And I look at these five like really smart physicists. And I was like, do you understand the science? Like what you're trying to do? They were doing some work with detectors. And they're like, of course. And I was like, why don't you just start from scratch and just try to do one thing, like collect some data? And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, we can do that. And so they threw away a 17-year-old application that had all of this baggage and it was poorly documented. And they started from scratch and they built an entire application from scratch in like three days. I couldn't believe it. There's no possible way that that would have ever happened in my mind where somebody would have done that. But once they were able to just like, try this very small step. They realized that it wasn't so hard and then they used Cocos to do it. And then they went and built it. They just took one step. That's all they needed. You know, meet them where they're at. That is amazing. And it kind of makes me wonder sometimes when someone tells me this story, like, oh no, we cannot change because we've been using these codes for decades. Kind of makes me wonder if maybe they just need to like try that one thing. And then in three days, they'd be like, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> Right. And, you know, so much of it is just like 
there is this anchor. I think I wrote about this one, that sort of anchor that's weighing HPC. And the anchor is like, we've been doing things this way. And these applications are a certain, and it's nobody's fault. Like, it's not like they're being stubborn. I think when I came into HPC, especially at the lab, it was a lot of like, haha, these people, they just want to stay in the past. You know, we're the future. We're using modern things. And I thought, how cocky. <laughs> there are reasons why these choices are made. And sometimes just removing one barrier and seeing the possibility is enough motivation for somebody to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And it wasn't anybody's fault. They weren't being stubborn. They weren't like trying to avoid. It was, yeah, this is hard. This is an application that's been around for 15 years. What makes you think that all of a sudden I'm going to rewrite the entire thing? right? Like that's a reasonable thing to say if you are a scientist using an application that wasn't developed by you. And many smart people have looked at it in the past. What makes anyone think that they're going to all of a sudden say, Psh, I'm going to throw this out and I'm going to redo the entire thing. That's absurd. So they're making reasonable choices. They're making reasonable arguments. Again, meet them where they're at, say, okay, you're right. Then let's just take one step. Let's figure out if that one step is hard. And if it doesn't work, throw it out. No problem. My approach to the hackathons was basically like, you test it. You tell me if this is useful. You tell me if this works. And in the meanwhile, I'm taking notes because if it didn't work, then I'd be like, hey, vendor, this sucks. Or hey, tool maker, this absolutely is awesome. They love this, but they would love it more if you did X or if you did Y. One of the examples was, I remember Michael Wolf was sitting right next to a team. He was the one of the main developers of the PGI compiler, and he was sitting next to a team. And for two hours, the team is just going back and forth, back and forth, and they don't understand the, the errors. They couldn't compile the app. And Michael Wolf sits down and he goes, oh, I see what's happening. He like looks at the whatever the compiler is doing. Of course, he wrote it. He understands what's happening. And he's like, oh, this is what's happening. And then the person goes, well, if you had just said that in the error message, I wouldn't have spent the last two hours trying to figure out what was happening. And he goes, well, we can just add that to the message. And I looked at him and I said, then why don't you just do that? And he literally fixed the compiler, added that to the message, and then redeployed the compiler for the hackathons because the whole entire hackathon, they were all having the same bug. They were crashing at the same point. And I was like, this is what we needed. We just needed tool builders and the actual developers sitting and going like, this is stupid. And then they're like, you're right. This is stupid. We should fix it. Done. That's hilarious. And I feel like also that error messages are something that we probably could do a little bit better at. Although I read recently that a lot of times software is looked at by a security team. And if you give too much information in the error message, they say, oh, no, you need to be more general and less specific because that could be something that could give something away. Oh, I didn't even consider that. See, that's why we need to have all of these voices in the room. I would have never considered that. Exactly. And I just want to mention, I love that metaphor, that HPC anchor. It definitely feels like that sometimes. So one thing I think about a lot is just this entire paradigm of HPC. It seems like because of this anchor, it's just impossible to get it to move, to get people thinking of different ways that the world could be. Have you thought about this? Like how realistic or idealistic is it to think of some future where you could have something that resembles HPC that allows for more automation and monitoring and not having maybe to interact with a job manager that's like really hard to use. Yeah. And actually that's one of the reasons why I ended up going toward hardware. If you look at the trajectory of my career, I started out helping out, you know, grad students and postdocs and then scientists at the agricultural genomics company I worked for, and then the lab in applications. 
And then I kept going further down into the hardware. I ended up going to NVIDIA and then later on Next Silicon. And that transition was exactly that. It was to try to influence some of these parts of the lower level layers to make it easier to speak to other parts. So we have all of these things that have been built for the time that they were built that end up building some baggage. And now we're trying to put new systems on top of that and new layers on top of that. So I don't think we're ever going to get like easy button easy, but I think we are getting to the point where we're starting to realize that the more we work together, that it could be more simplified, that people could leverage each other, that could push things down a little bit. And that's why I moved to Voltron Data, because the idea that how we do data science, how we move data, how we do any computing data, and that somehow has to be connected to a particular piece of hardware is something that Voltron Data is trying to solve. And I thought, that's interesting. I want to go move to that direction. I want to be able to decouple the hardware from how people actually think about the data and the compute, abstract away the hardware. And that's always been the technology of the future. And we want to get there, but we got to keep working. And it's going to take all of us. It's going to take people who are hardware people. It's going to take people who are you know, mid-layer people, it's going to take people who are applications people to all to understand how to abstract enough away, but not too much away and maintain the performance. So first, Voltron Data is a super cool name, especially because it starts with a V and there aren't many of those out there. <laughs> to go back to your story, how did you know it was sort of the right time to move from a national lab to, for example, NVIDIA? And then the same thing when you move from NVIDIA to your next opportunity. Again, I kind of move where things are interesting and where I wanted to go, where I felt it was interesting, required a leveling up within the lab system. And unfortunately, the lab that I was at wasn't as friendly to people without PhDs and there wasn't really a path. In fact, I actually ended up into a PhD program. They sort of try to remedy that by saying, well, you know, if you can't get promoted because you don't have a PhD, then let's get you a PhD which wasn't exactly, I think, the right answer, but whatever, it's something that I've always wanted to finish, so it kind of aligned anyway. Part of it is also just the interesting bits. NVIDIA came to me and said, hey, we want to be able to do what you did for the physical sciences with life sciences. We want to move life sciences to GPUs. We think that there's an opportunity there for them to do great science. And I had this background in genomics and you know, early on in my career, and I understood what bioinformatics was, and it was exactly what bioinformatics was suffering from, was they were about maybe a decade behind in terms of high-performance computing, but also eons ahead in terms of complexity and workflows and data. That confluence, I thought, this is interesting. I want to go do that. So it's a combination of not really having a path at the lab and also something more interesting at NVIDIA. And then leaving NVIDIA was, it was right around the time of COVID. There was also some life choices there, but it just felt like it wasn't quite where they needed the help. I wasn't feeling as useful at NVIDIA, although I enjoyed NVIDIA immensely. I've really yet to be in a place where I really not enjoyed. I'm lucky in that sense. The problem was interesting, but I didn't, I thought that there was still a lot more work to be done before I could help that bioinformatician to actually move forward. And so there was a time, you know, this COVID is happening. My friend that was doing a consulting company over at BioTeam, he's like, 
oh my gosh, we just got overwhelmed. Everybody's closed. Nobody's at the lab. They're all doing data analysis from their home. We could use a lot of help. And I was kind of lamenting, like, I just don't feel like I'm actually making a contribution here. And he says, why don't you come work for me? Let's go help this COVID thing out. And again, I jumped on the bandwagon because it felt interesting. It felt like I was being useful to a time in our lifetime that was probably going to be, you know, really important for everybody to pitch in and help. So I went to Bioteam and we did, we worked with pharma, some of the names that all people know uh, today. And it was super interesting to work with them and the teams that we I knew were directly working on vaccines. And so it felt very rewarding for me to be there for the year. And then I went to Next Silicon. It was, again, the opportunity of a lifetime. It was somebody at NVIDIA had come to me and said, hey, I've got this new chip company. They're actually working on an HPC chip. I showed it to my buddy. I showed it to Ari, the CEO of Bioteam. And I said, hey, I wasn't looking, but here, this kind of fell on my lap. And he said, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can come back. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, this sounds like an opportunity of a lifetime. Go for it. Things are slowing down a little bit. You know, we're still not ready for you to help with AI. It doesn't sound like the pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare companies are really ready for AI yet. Their data just isn't really ready for it. I should go try it. And then I ended up at Next Silicon. And then a transition from Next Silicon to here to Voltron. I realized that I really liked working at a startup. It's a fast-paced environment, which is great for my ADHD. But moving to Voltron was more of going back to this problem of solving data and solving the ability for people to do data science in a way that is with less friction is interesting to me. So now I'm at Voltron Data and going to tackle that and going back toward my roots, going back toward more data, more health, bioinformatics, people that have a lot of problems with getting data together and do something interesting with it. I absolutely love that your colleague said, hey, you know, this is an opportunity, take a chance, come back if you need. That feels like the kind of support that any of us would just really dream about. I also think it's really important to find a good match between what you genuinely love to do, what you want to sort of help with, and then of course your employer. And I think that's something that a lot of us are just constantly thinking about, looking at our current roles and saying, is this a match for me? Is it maybe not a great match? And sometimes you do have to kind of jump and try a new opportunity to see if it's a better fit. And definitely from your story, it sounds like taking this small jump, which is you know, any change in life is a risk towards change has given you really rich life experiences and better, more learning than if you didn't make any changes. Yeah. And things move so fast today, right? I used to think that people need at least a couple of years in some sort of place to actually make a difference or learn. And things were moving so fast during COVID. Things were moving so fast that it felt like a lifetime working at a startup, working in Next Silicon. It really did. I spent a year there and it felt like at least three. And it felt like a lifetime working at Bioteam. I spent a year there also. And it felt like at least three because it was moving so fast. And I would have looked down on somebody with a resume like mine because it kind of looks like this person is jumping around. What is happening? But it really is just moving entirely too fast compared to working at a place that has already processes in place and stuff like NVIDIA or even the lab. The six years I spent at the lab weren't nearly as fast as working at NVIDIA for two years, working at Bioteam for one year and Silicon for a year. It's super fast when you move to this smaller, agile, startup-y kind of place. Is it something that you think 
other people or most people should try or is it really fit for a certain kind of personality type? Like if, if someone is listening right now and maybe they've been in a national lab for a long time or an academic center and it's very kind of slow and comfortable, should they take that risk? If it sounds interesting to you, that's how I've been doing my career. If it sounds remotely more interesting to go work in that, absolutely take the risk. Do not take the risk. If you're thinking, you know, big dollar signs because you're going to someplace like AWS or NVIDIA, that's a great place though for financial stuff. That's your goal at that point in life. And at that point in my life in 2018, when I went to NVIDIA, financial security was a big part of my goal at that point. I was mid-career, you know, making government pay and a big paycheck was great and made me feel more confident about my career. I could take a breather. I wasn't hustling. I wasn't thinking so much about finances, right? I could breathe. And today, these risks that I've taken with going to BioTeam and going to Next Silicon and now coming to Voltron Data are because I have a nice financial foundation that I'm able to take this leap. So... Absolutely. I mean, if it sounds interesting to you, go try it. The labs will always be there. The labs are constantly hurting for talent and today even more because pay is so unbalanced between national labs and industry. So there will always be a place for people at the labs. I wouldn't worry so much about it. If fast pace sounds like the place for you, if you find yourself constantly frustrated by processes. Oak Ridge wasn't too bad about processes, but there were like unwritten processes wherein like if you wanted to do something, you had to get a consensus that before I knew it, there were 15 people in the meeting room just discussing whether or not this should be done and you just wanted to do it. So that kind of consensus frustrated me at the lab, but at the same time, the liberty to pursue research was, you know, parallel to none. And I didn't have to think about revenue ever at the lab. I didn't have to think about making revenue or helping make revenue or revenue cycles and fiscal years that, you know, like have to do with any of that. And that's liberating and it's on its own. But working in industry, what's fun about it is there's lots of research in the industry. This idea that research only happens in academia or national labs is no longer the case. So there's lots of cutting edge work being done in industry and try it. And if you're young, especially try it, try it in your youth. I'm now at a point in my life where my kids are 23 and 17. They're no longer little. Traveling for me is no longer really an issue. I can leave them alone and know that they're not going to starve. They can feed themselves. You know, they're not going to miss mommy as much. In fact, they're probably like, mom, get out. I know we're going to get to watch movies late. And that was very freeing for me. It all depends on where you are in your life. So if anybody wants to talk about it, hit me up on Twitter and I'll gladly share my experience. So to look back on all your years of experience and then now to look forward a little bit, what problems do we have now that you hope will maybe be solved in five or 10 years? In the near term, I'm hoping that we'll solve the issue of data integration. That's been an issue for a lot of people who want to take advantage of data that are coming from different things completely. So it could be like instrument data that's coming from, say, you know, the city has instrument data and you want to study some particular ecosystem. And if you could just combine this ecosystem with your instrument data, plus some sort of city instrument data, then you can actually make inroads in analyzing what's happening with the current climate in this particular area and how it's changing. That is hard. It's super hard right now. You have to download data, combine data, mess with data, do all this ETL 
that is difficult. Same with healthcare. If I want to understand how a patient is doing and combine data from different sources that, you know, maybe a hospital plus some sort of like, I don't know, water data to figure out if this patient is at risk for some other sort of disease. If you want to do that kind of research, it's impossible. It's darn near impossible. Probably a grad student will spend at least four years just trying to figure out how to put the data together, let alone actually publish the work. And none of this is live. I absolutely none of this is live. One of the examples that Oak Ridge and I worked at at Oak Ridge was the cancer moonshot project. One of them was had to do with like these cancer registries. So one of the things that I did at Oak Ridge was work on this cancer registry that's nationwide. And the reports come out on how cancer is changing within the United States. The reports come out like two years late. So the data is two years old by the time anything can be done that's actionable on the data. And to combine that and shorten that, was the goal for the group that I worked at at BSAC. Gino Tarazzi was the group leader at the time when I worked over there. And to shorten it to maybe near live, you know, maybe the same year, maybe within like six months, there's a hot spot all of a sudden because there's some spill and there are people coming up with leukemia. We would want to know and act on it. And we can't do that right now. So data integration, I think, is going to be the next big step in major things that are changing. And I'm hoping to be part of it. And I'm hoping that I'll be working on it here at Voltron Data. That sounds super exciting. So we're coming up on time. I have just two more questions. Out of all of the places you've sat, where do you think you've had the most impact? And given that impact, what have you learned about yourself? I think I had the most impact when I was at Oak Ridge. And the reason why is because I had a half a million dollar budget to do training. And that made it so much easier for me to have the impact, to be able to fly people in and put mentors next to other folks that were trying to do the application. I loved my time at Oak Ridge. I would go back in a heartbeat, but right now I am trying to have an impact in a way that helps a different audience that the lab isn't necessarily particularly focused on right now. The lab is obviously very focused on science. And I think that there is a lot of science that could happen and just a lot of data science in general that could happen outside of it. What I learned about myself is that I really care probably too deeply about things. And I've learned to listen and to not really assume that people are bad in any way, right? I've learned to assume that there are choices that people make and the choices are reasonable when they made it. And today I live my life like that. And so instead of living my life thinking this shouldn't happen, I try to live my life in a way I was like, why, why is this happening? More curious. So I'm far more curious about why this is happening or why is it this way than I am? Well, this shouldn't work. This is terrible. Like, why are they doing this? It hasn't really translated into like politics yet, but <laughs> I'm trying to be more curious about politics and why bad decisions are made. Now I am much more curious about people's story and how they got there. And I think I, I like that way of living a lot more. Final question. What do you like to do in your free time, perhaps elusive free time when you aren't working? Right now, I've gotten back into gaming with my girls, and I'm also dragged a lot into their TV land. I'm not much of a movie buff or a TV watcher, but they drag me into their K-dramas, and so I've been doing a lot and spending a lot of time with them there. I love to do home improvement projects. I have this giant deck that I need to take apart and refurbish and rebuild, and I would love to do that, but 
I just don't have the time at this moment. But the really cool thing I'm working on that eventually I hope to finish is I'm trying to refurbish and bring back a 1978 GMC motorhome. She's been sitting on my driveway and we haven't really had the time because of all the job changes to work on her. But my youngest daughter and I hope to one day finish her. Her name is Hippie, Hypatia, and we hope to bring her back to glory. And she's a lot of fun. Bring Hippie back to glory. That sounds really, really fun. (laughs) So Fernanda, it was so fun talking to you about these topics. You have so much diverse experience in our communities, and I'm really excited to share the wisdom that you've brought to the community on RC Stories. So thank you for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.